Welcome to the Asia Society Hong Kong Movers and Shakers podcast. Through the short interactive fireside chat, we get to meet with the leaders and game changers in different industries for insights into their personal journey to success, what they learned, how they failed, and other interesting wisdom they may want to share. Today's podcast is with General David Petraeus, Chairman of the KKR Global Institute. Prior to joining KKR, General Petraeus served over 37 years in the U.S. military, culminating his career with six consecutive commands, five of which were in combat, including Command of the Coalition Forces during the surge in Iraq, Command of the U.S. Central Command, and Command of the Coalition Forces in Afghanistan. Following his service in the military, General Petraeus served as Director of the CIA during a period of significant achievement in the global war on terror. General Petraeus has received numerous U.S. military, State Department, NATO, and United Nations medals and awards, including four Defense Distinguished Medals, the Bronze Star Medal for Valor, and the Combat Action Badge, and he has been decorated by 13 foreign countries. General Petraeus sat down with Asia Society Hong Kong Executive Director Alice Mong to conduct the following interview. As you know, this uh, podcast is targeting, uh, is geared toward the, Hong, young, uh, the young people of Hong Kong. And as a young person, uh, you know, we usually have members, uh, influencers in our lives father, mother, teachers, or, or mentors. Um, and what, who has been your mentor? And kind of what are some of the lessons that they have imparted to you? Sure. First of all, I'll be with you and therefore indirectly with the population of Hong Kong that will uh, be the leaders of the future. Um, I, look, I had wonderful parents and great teachers and coaches and ministers and friends and mentors, but there was one who truly did stand out, uh, General Jack Galvin. I first worked for him. I was his aide uh, when I was a captain, and he was a two-star general and a division commander responsible for about 15 or 20,000 troops. Uh, he had had a very interesting career path. Uh, it was one that was, he was truly not just a soldier and a great soldier on the battlefield in Vietnam, but he was an accomplished scholar. Uh, and then later on, he would prove to be quite a statesman as well. Uh, and I worked for him twice more uh, when he was a four-star in U.S. Southern Command as a commander-in-chief based out of Panama at that time. And then when he was the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, the NATO commander uh, in Mons, Belgium. I worked for him there as a speechwriter. And very early on, when I was, again, a captain for him at a particularly critical juncture in my career, where I had a choice between going to the ultimate unit in the infantry, the Ranger Regiment, a Ranger Battalion, or to go to graduate school, he suggested that I seek out of my intellectual comfort zone experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, you know, you ought to raise your intellectual sights beyond the maximum effective range of an M60 machine gun, uh, because that's the longest distance of any of the weapons uh, in, in an infantry company, which I had commanded already at that time. And he said, you know, you're a pretty accomplished infantry officer. You've done well. You're going to go to the staff college and actually ended up being the distinguished graduate of that. But he said, you should really think about doing something that will truly challenge you intellectually, get you out of your intellectual comfort zone. And as a result, I ended up going to graduate school uh, instead of to the Rangers and um, did a master's and then a PhD there. And it was an extraordinary experience. It was a really defining uh, experience in many respects, but the most significant was that I learned that there are seriously bright people 
who do not see the world the same way I do. Uh, and that is, has become increasingly important uh, throughout my life, but especially when I ended up in foreign countries uh, with very considerable responsibility, not much guidance, uh, and had that kind of, again, intellectual experience on which I could fall back. Uh, and it made truly all the difference in the world. There were also obviously other skills that I achieved. I like to think I improved uh, the writing capabilities and critical analysis and, and some important understanding of international relations and key concepts of economics and political philosophy and so forth. But it was really this just overarching appreciation that once you get out of the grindstone cloister existence of the military, where your nose is to the grindstone and you're living a somewhat cloistered existence with others who think roughly the same way you do, and where a big debate is a minuscule debate in the grand scheme of things. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of, you know, when you think of, you, you're now very successful in your career, but what do you think, and in, in when you in think about when you define success, what is your definition of success uh, and why? I mean, is it? Well, I think success actually varies from individual to individual. Mm -hmm. um, what is it that is important? Uh, what do you want to achieve? How do you, what are your benchmarks? And the military is pretty straightforward. Um, mm -hmm. In general, although not everyone wants to be a four-star general, but an awful lot of people see that as sort of the ultimate success, and then, gosh, to command in combat would be, it, that's a very rare occurrence to begin with. But So I, I think that's, that's fairly straightforward. Um, in the business world, certainly, certainly CEOs are generally viewed as having been successful. But again, that's not necessarily true. I had plenty of West Point classmates who saw success as perhaps first and foremost it was being the best father and husband they could be uh, and they were willing to sacrifice some part of their military career uh, to get off the fast track or sometimes do something other than what would have kept them speeding along um, to prioritize those other aspects of life that they felt were important there were others who um, wanted to pursue a certain academic discipline. Uh, there were those who wanted to be doctors or lawyers or what have you. And again, there are some defined measures, I guess, even in those fields. But again, not everyone wants. So success, I think, is an individual endeavor. But what is your definition now of success for yourself? Well, I mean, now it's engaging in tasks that are intellectually stimulating. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I obviously achieved a you know, a considerable degree of success in the military and was director of the CIA and um, you know, been incredibly fortunate when you think about it to come to an investment firm and okay, chairman of the Global Institute geo do the geopolitical risk and then integrate that with the macroeconomic and environmental social governance issues analysis. That's pretty straightforward. It's a little bit like being the CIA director, but for a financial firm instead of the national security team. But, but then to be made a partner was really a big surprise, frankly, four and a half years ago, about a year and a half into my time here. Um, look, I mean, it's also being the grandfather and dad and husband and everything else I can be as well. So um, 
it may be that I actually have a little bit more balance in my life than I had when you think of my final 10 years in uniform and was deployed in foreign countries for six of the, of the 10 years and then gone as the U.S. Central Command commander probably another six to 12 months out of that particular assignment as well. Um, again, the family understood that because, you know, there was, there was a war on and, and I had six consecutive commands, so enormous responsibility in my general officer years, five of which were in combat. How about failures? I mean, we've been talking about successes, but have there been certain failures in your sure. life that have set up for later success? That I don't know that they set you up for later success. I think what, what you want, I mean, look, first of all, there are setbacks in life. Life is not endless high-five moments. Mm -hmm. I mean, even the greatest of athletes, even the greatest of business leaders, the greatest of political leaders, the greatest of generals have sustained setbacks and mistakes. Um, I had some very public ones um, in my final government job, and I don't think it set me up for success. I mean, it caused some very, very painful episodes, frankly. But I think at the end of the day, what you want to do with any mistake, and by the way, a mistake when you're a leader can be a personal mistake or it can be a collective mistake. I mean, the organization's members can make a mistake. I remember a soldier who shot pages of a Koran for target practice. Uh, that's a massive mistake. That was an organizational failure. It almost cost us the mission for a period of time in Iraq. I mean, this resulted in not just me on camera apologizing to the Prime Minister of Iraq, but President Bush personally apologizing as well. So again, there will be mistakes. Organizations make mistakes. Um, there's no endeavor in life without setbacks. The question is, how do you respond to them? Um, and again, obviously try to limit the ones that you make yourself um, and certainly limit the severity of them. Um, but the, the question is, how do you sit down, acknowledge it, take ownership of the mistake, uh, review the circumstances, figure out what you should learn from it, and then pick up the rucksack again and start putting your left foot in front of your right foot and repeating the process. And, you know, if it's a significant mistake, and, and again, I experienced this, um, it is exceedingly painful. And there are days when you're not sure you're going to pick up the rucksack again, or if you're willing that nobody else wants you to. Um, or, and so you've just got to have a degree of fortitude. Um, you've got to, again, go through that. We have a term in the military called an after-action review, and we do this after every operation and after every training exercise even. You sit down and go through, do an audit essentially of what, what was supposed to take place, what actually took place, um, why did this happen, how can you do it better? And what do you need to do to mitigate the risks in the future? By the way, we also do very extensive risk assessment uh, before any operation to try to anticipate what the risks are, uh, where things could go awry, so that, again, you have contingencies for these. You know, the, the enemy gets a vote. Um, mm -hmm. As we used to say, no plan survives contact with reality or the enemy. 
And so you not only want to have a really good base plan, you want to have a lot of different, as we called it, branches and sequels that branch off from it, depending if the enemy does this, then we do that. If the enemy is over here, then we do that, and so forth. And, and they just keep branching off, and you've got to try to prepare as much as you can, but then retain the flexibility of execution and mind to acknowledge that the enemy hasn't done, or the customers haven't responded in the business world the way you hope, or the clientele, or the workforce, or what have you. So again, I think that's the key. Um, there was a very instructive moment in General Grant's history, and I'm a huge admirer of Ulysses S. Grant, who at the end of the day was the key to winning the Civil War for the North. Uh, in part because his actions ensured that Lincoln would get reelected in 1864, which was in question. And had Lincoln's opponent, General McClellan, won, he would have sued for peace and we would not have a union such as we have now. So he, in one of his early battles, I think he was still just a two-star general, the enemy surprised him in the very first day. It was at, at Shiloh, bloody Shiloh as it's called and almost drove the Union forces back into, I think it was the Tennessee River. That was to their back, and they were literally, in a sense, clean to the bank of that river as that night he was moving reinforcements. Ultimately, he prevails. They, the North owns the battlefield. The Union forces own the day, but it's a very bloody affair, and it's less conclusive than it appears, uh, and they took huge casualties. And after that first day, Grant is sitting in the rain. There's no shelter available because it's all being used for makeshift hospitals. He can hear the cries of soldiers who are having limbs amputated. He can hear the, the cries of soldiers still out on the battlefield who haven't been recovered, uh, who are seriously wounded. And the rain is dripping off his slouch hat. He's got a stub of a cigar in his mouth. And his most trusted lieutenant, Sherman, comes out of the dark and pauses for a moment, and then he says, well, Grant, we had the devil's own day today, didn't we? And Grant takes a cigar out of his mouth, and he says, yep, lick him tomorrow, though. And that's what you've got to have, that kind of indomitable spirit in the face of reverses, of setbacks, because, again, they were very nearly defeated on that first day. It's one of the very rare times that that combination um, was surprised on the battlefield and, and almost defeated. That's, thank you, that's very thoughtful. Um, but one of the questions that I also wanted to ask you, uh, I understand, um, you know, we're gonna be celebrating Asia Society Hong Kong, our 30th anniversary in January of 2020. And one of the questions we've been asking our various uh, uh, interviewers is their first trip to China. Uh, and uh, so I would love, or Asia, uh, as we are Asia Society in Hong Kong. So can you talk a little bit about your first trip to China or Asia sure. and your initial impression yeah. uh, when you, uh, you know, whether it's let Asia me, or China? Let me give you two different um, experiences. Because my first trip to China, or first, because my first trip to Asia was really Japan. Uh, and it was when I was a young officer, I think it was the aide to the chief of staff of the army at the, at the time. And I remember thinking that this is a country in which if something is worth doing, it's worth doing perfectly. <laughs> That's the attitude. that you, It doesn't matter what 
the Japanese people are doing. Um, if they're taking the toll at a toll booth, uh, they're yes. crossing their arm and, and nodding, bowing, if you yes. will, and thanking. Um, the taxi drivers are incomparable. Everything about the place uh, is, and that has been sustained over um, recent decades. That was decades before uh, ever going to China. And I must confess that there were plans to go to China in several of my different positions. And in each case, they were canceled because some crisis erupted between the U.S. and China. Um, one time, I think it was the downing of an aircraft that collided in the air. And again, there was always something that precluded uh, me going there when I was in either the military or the director of the CIA. So it was only when I was in, in KKR that I actually went to China. And what captures my experiences there best uh, is to explain my visit to the National Museum in Beijing, which when I was there, this was last, late last December, or late last year, and I was very keen to see the museum exhibition, which was chronicling the 40 years of achievement since Deng Xiaoping welcomed the world to China. And it was breathtaking, actually. Uh, and you are just sort of blown away by what China has achieved uh, since Deng opened China to the world in all sorts of different areas. Um, and I think that captures really my assessment of China, um, recognizing that there are different practices there in certain respects um, compared to the U.S., some of which I certainly appreciate more here. But at the end of the day, what China has accomplished is unprecedented and unequaled in world history, um, and it continues to very substantially uh, advance the quality of life of its people. Um, I think I'm in very cognizant of the time, so I'm going to ask um, basically uh, two last questions. And you, you know, can go as long as you want. Okay, but, but, but I mean, it's more your. I, I, I do, I, but I, but it's also um, I know uh, okay. timing wise. Sure. Uh, but I want to ask, um, you know, I guess one of the questions I, I, I think you've already alluded to is really leadership. Um, you know, in terms of right now, looking at the world today, um, in, in Asia as well as in in, in this part of the world. Um, kind of define your definition of, of, of a good leader uh, in terms of leadership, um, and that is the, one of the questions I want to ask you. Well, I think leadership in general, um, in the broadest sense, uh, is the art of creating conditions that bring out the very best in each of those who work for you directly, and also the very best in the organization collectively that you are privileged to lead. Now, there are four tasks that I believe are particularly important and they are crucial for strategic leaders. And strategic leaders are those who are truly charting the, the course, making the fundamental decisions 
about whether the organization goes left or right? What are the big ideas that guide it? Um, and the most successful of these individuals like Jeff Bezos, uh, Jack Ma, um, they've gotten the big ideas right again and again and again. Netflix, Reed Hastings has re-engineered Netflix four different times at least um, from its earliest origins. And <clears throat> these four tasks are first and foremost to get the big ideas right. And when it came to the surge in Iraq, for example, where I was privileged to be the strategic leader, the big ideas were 180 degrees different from what we've been executing before. And I've often said that more than the surge of forces, what mattered most was the surge of ideas. We could have gotten the 25 or 30,000 extra forces we ultimately got, and it would have had nowhere near the impact had we not completely overhauled what it was we were doing. So you've got to get the big ideas right. You've then, task number two is to communicate them effectively throughout the breadth and depth of the organization so that, to use again the surge in Iraq context again, that the soldier, the individual soldier under body armor and Kevlar with weapon going outside the wire has to understand my intent and be able to translate that into his or her actions on the battlefield uh, as they encounter individuals never knowing if they're going to be greeted with a handshake or a hand grenade, but responding appropriately to either. So that's crucially important, and this is communicated through the mission statement, which we change very quickly, the base campaign plan, a letter I sent to all the troops, a gathering of the commanders on the first day, all the rest of this. And it's constant, it's repetitive, uh, and so forth. The third task is overseeing the implementation of the big ideas. This is what we normally think of of leadership. It's recruiting the great people, it's inspiring them, it's giving energy to the workforce, it's setting a good example, it's um, picking the right metrics and understanding them so you have appreciation whether you're winning or losing. Um, it's how you spend your time. It's your battle rhythm, as we term it. What do you do every single day? What do you do several times a week, once a week, every other week, monthly, quarterly? Um, when is the campaign plan review? What is the structure of all that you do? And so forth and so on. It's seeing it for yourself because, as you well know, the organization does best what its boss focuses on most intently um, and all the rest of that. It's, and it's frankly, it's even identifying those who perhaps should move on and do something else, but allowing them to preserve their dignity and respect if that's uh, at all possible. And then there's a fourth task, which we often overlook, and companies do that at their peril. Uh, this is to review the big ideas uh, and to make decisions about how to revise them, to refine them, to adopt new ones, to leave old ones, and then to do it all over again, to communicate them, oversee their implementation, and once again come back to determine how they need to be refined and done again and again and again. And again, we know of companies that Kodak, for example, the great camera and film company, had thousands of, of digital patents, apparently, but it didn't recognize the imperative of speed and transitioning from 
film photography to digital photography. Uh, and it, that was basically an existential moment for it. Um, and, and so again, whereas you see, uh, as I said, Netflix or how Jack Ma has gone from, you know, connecting consumers with producers without warehouses, then creating a way to pay for it, Apple Pay. Uh, then creating a way to pay for it, Alipay. Um, then having knowledge about consumers uh, and their their resources, and you can actually do machine lending, and then you have a pool of capital, and now you can do insurance, or you, you name it, private equity, again, again, but almost unerring in how he has gone about that. Xiaomi, which has, I think, one of the best and most expressive set of big ideas, make technology accessible and fun. So they make it, it has to be technology, it can't be expensive because it has to be accessible and there has to be some element of, of sort of fun about it. Mm -hmm. And that is very, very powerful. And I've sat down with the leaders of, of Xiaomi and they just keep coming back to this uh, with enormous uh, rigor and, and, and real focus uh, that is very, very impressive. So as you think about leadership, again, we often think about these individual elements of, I mean, certainly focus and hard work and determination and dedication and integrity and um, <clears throat> energy and example and all the rest of that. But at a certain level, it becomes about sort of operational judgment. Can this leader get the big ideas right, communicate them, oversee the implementation, and then determine how they need to be refined in response to market trends, competition, the enemy, uh, whatever, and do it again and again and again. And again, Jeff Bezos has done this almost unerringly uh, as well. I'm going to ask the, the last question, and I don't know if you uh, uh, feel comfortable answering it, but in light of what's happening in Hong Kong today. Sure. Uh, you know, I've been away, so I've been watching it uh, on, on the news like everyone else. And in looking at the situation today, um, would you have any advice to both sides, whether it's the student protesters uh, or the Hong Kong government? And we were talking about leadership uh, earlier. And my understanding is the protesters seems like a leadership, a leaderless uh, uh, protest. But just, in, you know, in terms from your experience, um, your advice to both sides, government and the student leaders, or student yeah, protesters. Me, I mean, let me think for a second. I guess, I mean, for those who are on the streets, um, I think it's pretty admirable that they continue to give voice to their goals, um, which they believe are legitimate. I tend to agree with that. Um, but doing so, and this is an imperative, in a way that maintains uh, safety, um, it's, they're done massively but peacefully, uh, they can't devolve into violence. Um, and I think that has been incredibly impressive, frankly. Uh, when you see one quarter of the population of Hong Kong on the streets, 
that is quite significant. And especially if it's done peacefully, orderly, in an orderly manner. Um, and then for the leadership, I think I'm sure they realize, and by the way, it's the leadership not just of Hong Kong, it's the leadership, I think, in Beijing as well. Um, I think the eyes of the world are on Hong Kong and on, on Beijing, and it's an opportunity for them to show that they honor agreements that they have made. Again, the genesis of the concerns being voiced on the streets, it seems to me, um, have to do with the agreement that was signed between uh, the UK and, and China. And <clears throat> again, the world is watching to see if that agreement is honored. And then I guess, remember when one of your early questions is, how do you respond to a setback or something or a challenge or what have you? I think, I mean, as a leader, I used to, to try to be sensitive to situations which did occur, where all of a sudden I realized, you know what? Um, maybe my decision wasn't <clears throat> quite as persuasive uh, as I thought it was. And I think it's sometimes the most impressive of leaders who actually have the courage um, and, and the fortitude to say, you know what, let me re-examine this. Um, maybe, again, you guys are right and perhaps I'm not. I'm not. And so I think that that I think that can show enormous strength, actually. It can show enormous confidence. It can show enormous integrity. Um, and so I guess those are the thoughts that I would have um, as I look at that situation, noting that I have not been in Hong Kong or uh, in Beijing uh, since this all began. Well, thank you. On that positive note, um, I'm looking forward to returning on Monday, this coming mon uh, Monday, and see, and I'll report back to see. I think this is why institutions like Asia Society Hong Kong, uh, we were created uh, in the aftermath of Tiananmen. So we're going to be celebrating our 30th, and we hope to, as an institution, continue to be there and talk about uh, the importance of connecting Hong Kong uh, to the rest of the world, and uh, so we will keep our fingers crossed. Look, I think it's a hugely important mission. I think what Asia Society has achieved over its first three decades is very impressive. Um, I think that organizations like the Asia Society do their best work when they stimulate and inform and enable uh, discussion. Um, and that's frankly most useful when everybody inside the room doesn't agree. Correct. Uh, and there are lots of those situations today around the world. Uh, we may be in what most be must. We may be in what is the most complex period uh, since the end of the Cold War. 
Um, much of this has to do with Asia, and in particular the continued incredible rise of China, um, and the changes that that brings about. And this is what the Asia Society was created to address and to examine and to uh, foster meetings, dialogue, debates, and informed discussions. Well, on that note, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you great, so much. Great to be with you, Alice. Thank you.